0: So I'm gonna record a little bit about the siege of the Alamo. I gave a potted history of Texas, I don't know, a week or two ago, and now I'm gonna kind of drill down a little bit into the Alamo, because it's such a pivotal moment in Texas history. Um, And as before, I don't script this, I don't take notes, so sometimes I sort of just hum and haw, and I can't remember facts, and then I just back up and keep going, so. Forgive me for, for that. Um, so, yeah, so like the Alamo is in American and in, of course, in Texas history, this one of the key moments where the what were called Texians back then, which were basically the white settlers from the new United States, had decided that they were going to officially break from the Mexican government. And Mexico had fought a war with Spain. They were their own government. And in the northern part of Mexico, you had this very, very large state, which was a conjunction of Coahuila and Tejas in Spanish. And so it was actually called, suitably enough, Coahuila y Tejas. In English, that would be Coahuila and Texas. So um, this was the northern province, and the government, which was Santa Ana at the time, the great military general who played a huge role, of course, in the Alamo, the siege of the Alamo, was actually a federalist ruler in the new country of Mexico with the capital in Mexico City. And federalism meant that you don't have a monarchy and a lot of what you weren't centralist in the sense that you have to have all reaches of the area of the pro of the country controlled by the same kind of strict administrative laws and so on. So Santa Ana actually was friend, uh, was congenial and was a friend to the settlers who wanted to come in, get legal or illegal, at, at whichever one basically could, you know, whichever one worked, land titles, you would get 4,400 acres, which was a league, a little over that. And then as long as you paid taxes on the land, basically they were basically profit taxes. So it wasn't even really that that strenuous of a tax system. You were fine. And so with under the federalist system in Mexico, in Mexico City under Santa Ana, it was completely legal. The constitution, when they had fought the war with Spain, they had written a constitution which um, granted – Granted those land titles to settlement in the United States under the thinking that something needs to be done with the land and they had a serious problem with the Tejanos, which were the actually the first Spanish, then Mexico, Mexican cities, citizens up there were always getting involved in skirmishes with the Native American tribes, the Comanches and so on. So the place was kind of lawless. And there was a ton of land, and it was very dangerous. And then you had people coming in from the United States who wanted to settle it. And as long as they paid their taxes, Santa Ana thought that was a grand idea. So you had that kind of situation just before the Alamo in 1836. You had this large influx of settlers, and you had all kinds of problems there with the Native Americans and you had a you had this, the government in, in in Coahuila y tejas was in Satillo, which was like south of Houston, down sort of by Corpus Christi and then you had the main government down in Mexico City, and you had the main city in san antonio and but other than that, it was just kind of wide open, so all kinds of stuff was happening in this place, and it was very, very rife for. Uh, for revolution as the settlers grew in number they kept coming into contact with uh whatever mexican military forces were up there they were all based in san antonio basically or in the capital in saltillo and there was there were lots and lots of arguments over uh some very legitimate arguments over the failure to respect the land titles see but this is something you have to keep in mind though Not respecting land titles sounds like the grounds for war, right? But uh, Jim Bowie, who plays clearly a pivotal role in American history and in Texas history at the Alamo, he was basically selling illegal land titles as part of a business. So a lot of the settlers, they would get the document and they would take it to the local province authority in Mexico, wherever, and the guy would go like, that's not even my signature. That's not, I didn't do that. This is like an illegal land title. So then they would come in and try to take the land or to renegotiate the land. And so you had all these tensions building and that's what fomented the ideas for the war. Although you kind of have the idea that the fomentation of ideas for revolution was, was in the blood of the, the, earlier, the early settlers. So just before the Alamo, You have a little town called Guadalupe. I used to walk, actually, on the Guadalupe River. I used to hike there. It's just north. It's like sort of northeast of Austin. It's very beautiful. It's called the Hill Country. And back then, I think there still is a town there. It's not much on the map anymore, but it was, back then, it was basically a fort or a settlement. And you had the, the head of that settlement was an American, and he petitioned the basically the local, the or the San Antonio, the mayor, effectively, of San... It wasn't called a mayor, but he was the, the head of the San Antonio, the city of San Antonio. We petitioned him for uh, a cannon because they were constantly getting harassed by Comanche war tribes on in this little town of Guadalupe, this little settlement that they had gotten a land title and they built a the settlement. And so um, the mayor, basically, of of San Antonio gave them the cannon to protect them. And you have to understand too, like Tejanos, which were Mexican citizens living in this frontier province of Texas and Coahuila, the Tejanos were often in league with, they either worked with or worked for the American settlers. And so there were a lot of Mexican cities that were being, citizens that were being affected by the the violence and the disturbances going on in the Northern provinces. And so he gave them the cannon. they brought the they rolled the cannon up, and then um, uh, there was uh some skirmish that had really, really aggravated the settlers somewhere I think in San Felipe, which was basically like the Anglo capital. That's like a little bit, like I said, it's like a little it's it's sort of between Corpus Christi and Houston. And so that had put in the minds of everyone that they were going to go to war if they couldn't get this thing set, straightened out with the land titles and, and all else. And so that got back to Guadalupe. And when the soldiers or sorry, when they had the cannon and then when uh, Santa Anna had heard that they were having all these uh, disturbances and problems with the settlers, he got mad, basically. And he told the the governor of mayor governor, probably governor of San Antonio, he told him, go get the cannon again. The last thing we need is to like give these guys cannons because they're already causing all these problems. So go grab the cannon and bring it back to San Antonio. We might need it. And so he went, the guy went with the army to get the cannon. And when they showed up, like the Texians, you know, they were probably like half drunk, who knows, or just whatever. They just started firing the cannon that they had lent. The cannon that was that they had been lent, they started firing it on the troops that came up from San Antonio. And that was the war, that was the first, that was the, the beginning of what led to the siege of the Alamo. So several of the Mexican soldiers died. One of the Texians, as they were called, then died. And then the word got back to Santa Ana. So more troops were sent. Basically, the entire town of Guadalupe, like all the fighters anyway, all went back to San Felipe and reconvened. Now, by this time, Sam uh, Stephen F. Austin, who's the former journalist and lawyer, who he in the lore of Texas history, you have these key figures who are kind of big visionary dreamers of what could be this great expanse of new land that would eventually become part of the great growing United States. And by the way, Stephen F. Austin was always for, uh, Texas actually becoming part of the United States. He saw it as this great expansion and this, this big visionary dream, um, where people would start businesses and they would build beautiful cities and so on. And so Stephen F. Austin, uh, Following in his dad's footsteps who had the same dream and who had came they always talking to the Mexican government about what could be worked out with the northern provinces And he had went down, you know, while the basically just after the battle of uh, in Guadalupe He had been actually imprisoned in Mexico City because he had went down there officially to negotiate more favorable terms for uh, tariffs and 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 importation of goods and and land title uh, taxes and so on, property taxes and so on, and he had actually gotten what he wanted from the the president of Mexico was Santa Anna the the general then and when but when he left he like foolishly you can only describe it as foolishly had written a letter that was intercepted that basically said I got the negotiation but now I think we should think about even more like. Breaking Texas off from Coahuila y Tejas And this was not in the negotiation And Santa Ana viewed it, I think, correctly As seditious And um, You know, like at, at, at Basically as, a, as An indication that he couldn't Trust at all what was being said By these crazy guys up north So Santa Ana had started pushing troops Up from, from Mexico City Because he knew something was coming And he was right And so Austin was in jail for in Mexico City for a year. He's lucky he didn't lose his head, but he didn't. They just threw him in jail where he reportedly read a French biography in French. He learned French. I don't know how this happened in a Spanish dominated uh, city in Mexico City, but uh, it must have been fun spending a year in Mexico City jail. (laughs) And he was also depressed all the time as it as it was. I don't know. You don't really there's no never could really figure out why But he like I would hazard a guess that like going through 100 degree heat on horseback 500 miles through malarial infested parts of Mexico and Texas, um, you know, (laughs) the food, everything else like it was a rough life. Like these were difficult times to be doing this kind of stuff. And so he was often in poor health, but he survived the, uh, the the prison, his his time in prison in Mexico city. And when he got out, he went back to San Felipe, San Felipe and realized that everybody, that the situation was way worse and that the Santa Ana had been militarizing that part of Texas basically to put down in any ante- in anticipated insurrection, which was coming. So, so, the Guadalupe guys fired the San Antonio's cannon at the San Antonio people. And then they ran off to San Felipe and they all, they all convened and they had, you had all the famous people there. You had Sam Houston, the former government governor of Tennessee, who was also personal friends with Andrew Jackson, the president in, in DC of the United States. He was, he was a war hero who had fought out East against the Sioux and the Chickata and so on. And he also was, he had a, he was an extremely um, intelligent and uh, well-educated person. He had actually lived when he was younger among the Sioux Indian tribe and had learned their language, and so he could speak fluent Native American tongue. And um, he was generally very well-respected. Like I said, he was governor of Tennessee for a time, but when he... He uh, decided to come. He got really depressed. Like he also was, a, um, like he married when he was like I don't know, like forty. He and Andrew Jackson was like, "What are you doing?" Like I don't like like a lot of these early Texas guys. Wait till I get to Jim Bowie. Like he just kind of was larger than life and would spill over in weird ways. Like so, he married like a nineteen year old girl when he was like the governor of Tennessee. And then she just like I don't know what happened but you can speculate like she just like ran off. Like it was like he's friends with the president of the United States and he's governor. He's not supposed to be like in these weird situations. But like she just like ran off a week later after the uh after the honeymoon. I don't know what happened. People speculate cuz he had a war wound in his groin. Maybe he had some problems, you know, with the wife. I don't know. But I, whatever happened, she was she never ever again was with him. Like they, that was it. Like she just literally ran away from him. And I don't think there was any serious idea of like impropriety. I think like something happened. They, and like, she wasn't hurt. He didn't do nothing like that happened. She just left him. She just left him. So, but it was weird for a guy of that stature. And then he got really depressed and he sat out and they, he called it his drunk years later. Like he, he was a drunk for a while. Like he just gave up the governorship and like sat with the Indians and drank fire water for like three years. I don't know what the hell he was doing, but like he was just disappeared from life for like three years and just drinking frontier whiskey and ruining his health. And, you know, and, and he was morose and I think he was depressed over this 19 year old girl. And then like he got himself together and then Stephen F Austin the the guy that was educated in law in Tennessee and who knew him and then was a businessman and a journalist in New Orleans and of course Austin the city of Austin in Texas is named after him. Stephen F Austin was in San Felipe after when the all the troubles were breaking out and they were convening there and he, he invited Sam Houston out. So Sam Houston was like, okay, that sounds great. Like I'm, you know, like I need something new to do. You get the feeling. So he came out and he was a celebrity though. Like when he, even given all his personal struggles in his personal life, like he was very well respected. He was personal friends again with the president of the United States. And he was very, you know, he was, he was a big deal. So when he showed up, they thought, wow, we can do war now. We've got Sam Houston. Maybe they didn't know he'd been sitting in a like an Indian patch, you know, drinking hooch for years, but there he was there, and he was a very smart guy he was he at many points during the texas mexico war was almost solely responsible for wise decision making that kept them from getting defeated, and he ultimately was the one who captured Santa Ana at the end of that war, which is of course after the Alamo, so I skipped ahead. Um, But so with Sam Houston and um, everyone else and then Jim Bowie, who showed up, they decided they were going to do the siege. It was time to take the major city. It would be like the New York City of Mexico at that time was San Antonio. And they were going to take... First, uh, the mission in Bejar, which was up above San Antonio. And then from there, strategically, they were going to come down and they were going to get San Antonio. And if they got San Antonio, they had the province, the giant province of uh, Coahuila y Tejas. And from there, you know, they were going to start their own country. So they wrote a constitution. First, they had a document called the consultation where they basically laid out their reasons for – insurrection they laid out the problems they had been having now the story is very complicated when you try to square it with the american revolution because by all accounts they were very much players in the disruptions and the violence in that province they like they were always basically stirring up a a fight (laughs) like and they were always they were doing things uh they were always uh, involved in illegal activities, and so I'll tell you a quick story about Jim Bowie, which will perfectly illustrate. Uh, and not saying that the Mexican government wasn't didn't misapply the law, it's pretty clear that the government officials up there didn't have a tight, a uh, you know, there they didn't have a tight connection to the central government in Mexico City, and so like you you can imagine situations where the land titles were always under dispute. And you can imagine where the officials would come in, they would dispute the validity of the land title and then kick off the settlers who had just brought in their cousins and their loved ones and everyone to start a new life. And now they've got some legal problem with the Mexican government and they have no redress other than to fight. Uh, So, um, so there's a lot of blame to go around if you want to look at it that way in terms of what sparked the Mexican, the Texas-Mexico War. Uh, but uh, uh, so Jim Bowie, his role was pretty clear. <laughs> he was a, uh, an entrepreneur of the sort that went around the laws to make the money. And one of the things he did, in addition to importing slaves, which was illegal in Mexico, the Constitution explicitly prohibited the importation of slaves through the, it, from, coming in from ships in the Gulf of Mexico, from the Caribbean, and from, through, from the Atlantic, from Africa. And so it was, it was not even—the United States had banned importation as well, but if you had slaves, it was still legal to keep them. And in Mexico, it was illegal to have slaves and to import new ones, of course. And so people who had slaves had to invent really, really BS contracts, employment contracts, which basically meant that you were in servitude forever because the terms were so crappy, you could never pay it off. But they had to go around Mexican law to keep the slaves. And that was a big deal back then for them. That was a primary source of income when you had these huge, massive plots of land and you didn't have enough people for labor. Like, there was very little industrial machinery. And so human labor was a big economic plus. It was, almost, it was effectively in those southern places, it was viewed as a necessity. Um, and I won't get into that hornet's nest other than to say that history has not proven that to be correct. <laughs> um, but um, so Bowie was, he had one business uh, importing slaves through Galveston, which is the port city, which was a lot bigger at that time than Houston, but it's now, it's st- it's next to Houston, basically, inland on the Gulf. And he would run them inland up to New Orleans and sell them, and that was illegal. And that was one way he was kept making money. And then the other thing he did was he wrote illegal land titles. That was a great business for Bowie. <laughs> he like would basically just grant land under under the guise that he was acting in an official capacity for the Mexican government. And because it was so sparsely populated and so dangerous with Comanches and Apaches, like the Mexican government wasn't very eager to send people up there to verify everything. It was like, I don't want to go up there. It's like a hornet's nest of problems. Let, Let them figure it out. So Bowie realized this and he started making bank, just forging land titles, like just flat out forging them. And so, you know, he did this for a few years and eventually, like, you know, somebody would come in and say, well, where's the land grant for this? We have a dispute or whatever. And then they would get the land grant and they'd say, what is this? And then they would take it to the local official somewhere or maybe back to San Antonio. And the, the guy there would say, the governor of San Antonio would say, I don't, that's not even my signature. I don't know what, what is this? So Bowie, you know, Bowie was making things, making his, lining his pockets, but making the situation in some sense worse. Um. He's an interesting character though, and he wasn't all bad. He did a lot of he was a very brave fighter. Uh and he had uh he had been responsible for both legal and illegal businesses. And um he had a lot of respect from people who knew him well, but they also feared him. He was a giant guy, he was six two, and people said that when he got angry, he looked like a his face looked like a, a tiger snarling. And um and the story of the Bowie knife is apparently not apocryphal. It's not, it's actually, there's a lot of mythology mythology about Jim Bowie, but this is apparently true. He got in some, some dealing had led to like, somebody came back with a musket intending to kill him over some financial deal or something, probably in a saloon, and shot him. And the, the powder was kind of crappy, the musket powder. And so the bullet the ball hit him in the chest, but didn't penetrate it, like just made this huge bruise on his chest. And so Bowie got up and the guy couldn't reload in time. It's these old like Kentucky rifles at best. And, you know, it's like you have one shot and then you've got to like start the process of reloading. And so he just went over and like grabbed the guy by the throat and threw him down. And he tried to bite his finger off and he lost a tooth. The tooth got stuck in the guy's finger while he was trying to bite it off. And then he was holding him down by the neck with his hand. And he reached with his other hand for his clasp knife, which is a knife that you have to pull the blade up out of, you know, and he couldn't get it open. So while he was trying to kill the guy holding him down with his hand, he futzed with the blade long enough to realize that he, or just decide he didn't want to kill him. He probably figured, well, there's a lot of witnesses. So after he couldn't get the blade open a few times, he just got up in disgust and left the guy. But he went and he had a knife made that was later called the Bowie knife, and it's true, and it's just basically it's a giant blade that you do not that's that you do not have to open and it's designed expressly for the purpose of sticking into someone. And he said apparently it was was very well known that he had he had declared that if he saw that son of a bitch again he was going to stick the knife in him and he did see him again and he did kill him and um that's apparently is a true story and he said i cut his heartstrings out with the with the knife and that settles that so he was not somebody that you wanted to mess with and um he was there and everyone was coming in because texas has always been about something big at first it was about the dream and still you know is to some extent about the dream of coming and starting a new life and then it was a, you know for the people with the alamo it was about the dream of the revolution and fighting against all odds and so it brought in these guys these failed businessmen these types like bowie the types like stephen f austin Um, And it brought all these guys in along with a lot of Tejanos and a lot of Texians. And uh, they were all there and they decided they're going to they're going to take the entire province. And so they went and they took Behar, the mission. And from that, they launched another attack on the city of San Antonio, which was just crazy. San Antonio was like, I don't know. It was big. I don't know what the population was, but you have like a ragtag group of people and they take it and they don't kind of know what to do because it's so big that they don't like they have like a couple hundred troops, a few hundred, something like that. Not a lot in this giant city. And they're not sure everybody just like they when they defeated the military, everyone else just went inside and shut the door, you know, and they're like, huh, what's going on now? The, the, the white settlers have taken the Spanish mission, the city, but not just the mission, the whole city. So they wall up in the Alamo which is now just a church, but it used to be a big thing. It used to be like a military outpost and it had like a courtyard and everything. It was like this big thing with a wall around it. And they wall up there and they wait and Santa Ana has heard now about what's going on. And he knows also about Stephen F. Austin's letter and he sends up 2000 troops It takes them a while to get up there, but they get up there and then they wait and they stare at each other. And then they finally go in and they breach the wall and they, Kill everyone except a few people escape. We have the letters that are where some of them were left, and he Santa Anna basically takes people out and shoots them all that were survivors without any do anything. It was just no, not even war criminal. Just shoot them. And he threw them in a fire and he let them burn and he didn't bury the bodies. And the people who got out of the Alamo never, uh, never uh, forgot that. So that was the pivotal moment that was the official rift which would go on to see uh, the you know, the Texas-Mexico War, which was finally won under the leadership of Sam Houston, which uh, in the town of San Jacinto, which is just outside of Houston, which they named after him, which was also originally the capital city of the country of Texas, which then they moved to Austin because Houston was just a swamp. <laughs> it was not a good place for a capital city at that time probably isn't yet even today and and that's effectively what had started the war um after after the war it was only a couple decades and texas was a its own country for 10 years but there were there was always the leadership of texas knew that their destiny was to join the united states But it took them about 10 years to do it. And a lot of people were were making money. And when they had put down the Mexican, which they never completely put down, the fight, the war sort of officially ended with the signing of a peace agreement. And then people just continued to constantly fight over the Rio Grande down in South Texas. Like on one side you had Mexico and on the other side you had Texas. And then there was just constant bloodshed and shit going on down there. And it continues to this day. Wow, there's a thought. But yeah, so that area had become a, a big deal. And um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the, there's a there's a town there called Laredo, which Stephen F. Austin went through on his way to Mexico City. And then they later built a town just over the just over the border called Nuevo Laredo, which is called New Laredo. And so you have all these settlements on both sides, basically, of Texas and Mexico that's divided roughly by the Rio Grande. And the, it's a natural kind of landmark to say, like, south of the Rio Grande is Mexico and north of the Rio Grande is Texas. But you can't understand how people disagree with that carving it up. Um, you know, the, the borders of Texas there's it's so strange to think about it now, but Texas used to be Me- – Colorado and New Mexico as well. It was just like, well, it's just everything. And then the only thing that stopped it was California because you already had Spanish settlements there. They were very early because they're on the ocean. So, But it was just sort of like we have everything to California. That was all Texas. And that eventually happened as well. But the borders were very porous and – the the westward expansion of Texas after they had settled the Rio Grande with Mexico, sort of. Oh, by the way, here's an aside. When I was in graduate school at the University of Texas, me and another grad student, um, we drove down to Nuevo Laredo and had um, New Year's Eve celebration down in Mexico. And that was interesting. Um, <laughs> I I remember it well. They had... What could only be described as bombs, although referred to as fireworks, going off in the street. And it was very much a lawless and quite interesting place to have a New, York, New Year's Eve celebration. So I remember that well. And Colin, wherever you are, I hope you're still fishing, buddy. So anyway, that's pretty much what I have. Um, Texas history marches on after the Alamo. That's the truth of the Alamo. Um, and with that, I shall sign off.